Well, good morning. It is always a real pleasure to be here at Doolin's Grove. Um, now, I do, I am, uh, although it feels more like I work for Kara Brock than it feels like she works for me. But I, um, And I also used to work with Ron and Jan, and um, I drove Jan into retirement, so I don't know what that says about me. Um, I was reminded this this morning, something I heard a while back, and I don't know if this is true or not, but that the piano was designed as an instrument that was intended to mimic the range of the entire orchestra. And every time I hear Jan play, I'm reminded of how full and majestic an instrument a piano can be. I hope you guys don't take her for granted, because she is amazing. So uh, she really is um, incredible. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. It's the one at the very end, so it should be easy to find in your Bibles. And we're going to be looking at the fifth chapter. So um, I ask you to indulge me, if you would, as I'm going to read the first uh, five verses here. And just ask you, if you're able, to please stand as we read from God's Word. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open this scroll and its seven seals. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We just are so grateful for what a wonderful gift that it is that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us through it. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be free from any distraction. That by your Holy Spirit, you would come, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, minds to understand and hearts to believe. That you would take whatever, wherever I muddle your word or get it wrong, that by your Spirit, you would correct it. And Lord, that this morning that your word would live, that it would become alive to us, that it would change us, and that it would transform us to your honor and to your glory. So now, Father, I pray that you would teach us that which we do not know, give us that which we do not have, and make us that which we are not. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's see. So this morning we're going to look at a part of the book of Revelation. Um, the revelation that Jesus, the risen Christ, gave John, the beloved apostle, um, it was when John was an old man on the Isle of Patmos. He had been exiled for the testimony of Jesus, it says. So he had been proclaiming Jesus. He had been preaching the gospel. And so he was exiled to to this island. And, and that's what the, the book of Revelation is. And it is the vision that, that Jesus gave to John. Uh, it is an intimidating book in a lot of ways. And I'll be honest with you. Um, I have exactly one sermon on Revelation in, in my arsenal, and this is it. And it's a fairly recent edition, because if I'm just honest with you, I'm intimidated by the book. 
It's, it's full of unique and often uh, difficult symbols, images, and metaphors. It's a very unique kind of literature. It's called apocalyptic literature. It's unique even to the Bible. There's only a couple of other books like Ezekiel and Daniel that have this sort of apocalyptic uh, genre to them. And, uh, and, and the word apocalypse is an interesting word. It literally means an unveiling or an uncovering. And and this is what we see in the book of Revelation. We see this unveiling of the end of time. This God's plan for un- redeeming His creation and how it's all going to work out. Uh, J- Jesus is very clear with John what He's about to tell him. If we go back to Revelation 1.19, He says to John, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So it's his unveiling. And so even though it's a difficult book, I would, I would encourage you in Revelation 1, 3, it's a very special book because it is the only book in the Bible that has this promise. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. And so this was a special book. It is a powerful book. It is a book of blessing. So this morning, I want us to understand how this book turns our hearts and our minds and our focus on Jesus, who is our Redeemer. So chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation represent those things that are. As John wrote letters to the seven churches in Asia, and there were seven real churches contemporary to John's time, and he wrote these, and these are the things that are. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we begin to see really what's a pivot point for the book. Where Jesus in his revelation begins to move from the things that are to the things that will be. Those things that will soon take place. And the way he does that is, is there's this sort of intermediary vision that John has given where he is taken in chapters 4 and 5 into the throne room of heaven. That he is lifted up and he sees this amazing vision. And what will happen after at the end of chapter 5 when we get into chapter 6, then the true unveiling begins. That there is this, um, that's when it gets weird. Right? That's when the book starts getting really kind of peculiar and, and, and hard to deal with. And we get all these symbols and different things. And so, but chapters 4 and 5 set that up and they set our focus where they need to be, because sometimes when we get in this book, we can get so bogged down in the symbols and the details that we forget the main things, we forget the plain things, we forget the big picture and the most important point. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. We're going to see how that this points us to Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, the one who is worthy to open the seals and to redeem the creation. So chapter 4 begins this vision. And I want us to get us a context for what we're going to read in chapter 5. Because in chapter 4, Jesus focuses our attention on God the Creator. But then in chapter 5, He focuses our attention on Jesus the Redeemer. And so John sees this vision. He sees a door standing open in heaven and he's ushered inside. And then Revelation 4, 1 through 6, I want us to just read this briefly so we understand the context we're looking at. And he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven 
with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there were was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Amen. I can stop now. Just run over that in your head, that vision. What must it have been like for John to have seen that? How overwhelming. I mean, I think in our day and age of movies and special effects, maybe we're not quite as phased by it. But it would be an incredible vision that he sees. And it is a stark reminder right at the beginning of this book that we must never view what happens in this book from a human point of view. But that it must always be measured against who God is and what He is doing. We must never forget that the triune God is the main character of the redemption story. We look forward to Jesus' second coming with great hope and great expectation and great anticipation for the promises and the blessings that it will bring. But we must remember that His second coming is not primarily about us. It is primarily about Him. It is about Him and His glory. We must understand very clearly, and and John helps to point us here in chapters 4 and 5, particularly chapter 5, that God's redemptive plan in history is because of Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, and about Jesus. He is the Lamb who is worthy. And so let's begin to unpack this vision and look at it. Verses 1 through 4 John, which I read, John walks through this open door and he sees this magnificent scene in heaven's throne room. And so if you'd imagine looking at it in the center, you have this, you have God, the father, the creator on his throne, majestic in all his glory in the center. And then on each side, there are 12 thrones and the thrones of which sit 24 elders. And then there's these four really weird creatures flying around. Now, we're not, I'm not going to try to unpack all that time, this. People have different opinions about who these are and what they represent and everything. I want to suggest to you this morning that the 24 elders represent God's covenant people. That's who they represent. They're representative of, of God's covenant people, of believers in Jesus Christ. That's who the 24 elders represent. And then the four living creatures represent the natural creation. And so we're going to take time to unpack all that, but just go with me on that and you can correct me later if you think I'm wrong. But central to the whole scene, though, and again, this is where we get so caught up. We go, well, who are the elders? Who are the creatures? Who cares? 
Because what we care about is God on his throne. He is central in this vision. And John looks at God on his throne and he sees something in God's right hand. And what he sees is a scroll. But this scroll is unique. There's something special about it. First, it was written on both sides. Now, they didn't have paper like we had back then. They, they, the materials they would use were often um, woven together like a tapestry. And if you've ever seen a tapestry on the front, it's smooth. But what's it like on the back side? It's rough because that's where all your, everything is on the back. And so it was very unusual in that day and time to write on both sides of a, of a, of a piece of paper or something that they would write on for scrolls at that time. But so it seems to be trying to communicate something here about this scroll, this idea that this scroll is complete, that there is no more space to write anything on it. It is full. God's redemptive plan is done. It's final. There will be no more to it. What is written on it is a full and complete account to which nothing can be added. Second, this scroll was sealed seven times. Now, sealing is something we kind of don't understand today, but um, of, co- of course, a lot of you know what it is, is that when you had a document to ensure that the document hadn't been tampered with, they would take the paper or whatever it was written on and they would fold it over and then on the fold, they would take either hot wax or they would take... Um, clay that was still sticky and wet and they would put it on there and then uh, often it would be a ring be a signet ring of a king or someone in authority and they would press it down in there oftentimes it would even have cord to make sure things were bound securely and so that when the person who received that letter could be sure that it had not been tampered with that it was authentic they could make sure that seal hadn't been broken they would actually break the seal and and know that it was legitimate and so the seals were in that day and time were a sign of authority. And, and in this particular case, it, it, because it was a, it was from the king on the throne, it implied a kingly authority and ownership. Now the number seven was also unique and special. Seven is the biblical number of perfection, of completeness. And so it carries with it the idea, number one, that the scroll was complete again, that it was final. And so the idea is, and this is where we get this unveiling idea a little bit at a time in the book of Revelation, is that each time they would roll the scroll, when it would meet, they would seal it. They would meet, it would seal it. They would meet, and it would seal it. It was seven times. And so the scroll, so it was sealed seven times. And so to read the scroll, you would have to unroll it, break a seal, unroll it, break a seal, unroll it, break a seal, until you could read the entire thing. And so that was the idea here. And then finally, this scroll was in God's right hand. Now, this is something that, you know, we, we have an expression, a right hand man. You've probably heard that before. But the idea of the right hand in that day and time is it was a position of power and authority. And so the fact that it was placed in God's right hand, that he held it in his right hand, it was not in any way to, it, it would, that meant something that was important. That this was, that there was authority and there was power in this scroll. But what was it? What exactly was the scroll? Well, again, this is the subject of some debate. But it resembles a will or a contract of that time and day. Um, it could be, it could be seen as, um, God's covenant contract with his people or with the creation. Um, it could be seen as a title deed. A title deed of inheritance to all of creation. 
And in some ways, as we see this, that one makes a lot of sense. This idea that this is about Jesus claiming the title deed to all of creation. Now, we don't know specifically, but at the very least, we can say that this was a heavenly book containing God's plan and destiny for the world. And the, every time this unsealing of this book means the accomplishments of things that God has purposed. As the seals are broken, the plan is unveiled. So John is very excited at this point because he had had this promise from the Lord and now he is at this point and the plan is right there in front of him. But a problem arises in the vision. A great angel shouts, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This is an interesting question that the angel asks. He doesn't say, well, who is strong enough? Who is wise enough? Who is smart enough? Who is bold enough? But who is worthy? Who is worthwhile to open this scroll? And then he says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. There was no one who was found who was worthy to open the scroll that sat in God's right hand. Not people, not the angels, not the 24 elders, not the flying creatures, no one. Because the scroll represented the will of God, only one equal to God could reveal its contents and no one qualified. See, if this was indeed the title deed to the earth, then whoever could take the scroll would be the rightful king over all creation and all eternity. Now, the angel is setting this up. It's a rhetorical question. But John is devastated by this news. And he begins to weep. He begins to weep loudly. He begins to wail at this news that no one is found worthy to open this scroll. Now, why did he feel that way? Why did he weep? I think it's because he couldn't, it's pure speculation, but, but that he couldn't receive the promise that he had been given. He'd been promised this great thing to see God's unveiling the things that would take place, how God would redeem all things, and then suddenly, that great blessing, that great privilege, God's consummation of redemption in history was not, he couldn't take advantage of it. He couldn't grab it. He couldn't seize it. Imagine someone offered you the greatest treasure in the world and they take you to the treasure room door and it's locked and then no one has a key. This is what John was feeling. He was feeling the weight of this amazing opportunity. I mean, think of being taken up to the highest high and then suddenly dropped to the bottom because what you had been promised wasn't there. That's where John was. And so the, in, in John's mind, the church's hope, humanity's hope, the, the hope of creation stood in jeopardy. And he began to weep loudly because he longed for God's purposes. He longed to see this unveiling. He longed to see God finally. Redeem his creation. But then that moves us to verses 5 through 8. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. 
And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So here's John at the depths of his despairs, and one of the elders comes and he comforts him and says, Weep no more. Boy, that's good news. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. One who is worthy has been found. And that is the greatest news. Now, just momentarily, I want to take you down a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I want you to notice the titles. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, There's something here that helps us understand that God's redemptive plan was rooted in the Old Testament. God's redemptive plan didn't start in Bethlehem. It started in Genesis. And all through it, we see God working and Him moving us towards His redemption of all things. And we are reminded that we cannot rightly understand the book of Revelation specifically the New Testament generally, and the Gospel most importantly, unless we understand that God's plan for redemption is rooted in the Old Testament. It is in the Old Testament we find the beginning of the New. And we must not unhitch the Gospel from the Old Testament lest we destroy its foundations. Now this idea here is that Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion has conquered, he says. He has conquered at the cross in the empty tomb. This concept would have instilled hope in John's readers because the people that would read this, the people he he was writing to, were people who were persecuted for their faith. They were suffering for following Jesus. They were sacrificing. And yet to hear that the lion had conquered through surrender, that the lion had conquered through suffering, would have been great comfort to them. And so God's purposes of redemption and rule can be accomplished only through the one who is uniquely worthy, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting. John is told that there is a lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet he turns and what does he see? He does not see a lion. He sees a lamb. And this marks a turning point in this book as well. Interestingly enough, right here in Revelation chapter 5, this is the last time in this book that Jesus is referred to as a lion. And yet for the rest of the book, 29 times in total in this book, He is referred to as a lamb. A lamb, so it speaks to His sacrifice. It speaks to His giving His life in our place. And John describes this lamb, and it's a peculiar lamb. It doesn't sound like a very cute, you know, lambs are cute. This does not sound like a very cute lamb. First, he says that the lamb was standing, though he appears to have been slain. Now, this is, of course, a reference to Jesus, to his death and to his resurrection. Slain things don't stand. Dead stuff is, is doesn't stand up. And so this is the idea that the lamb who had been killed and the lamb had been raised and the lamb was now standing. And there's some unique features of this lamb. I've never seen a lamb that looks like this. He had seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits proceeding from him. 
What this tells us is we have a clear ascription of deity and divinity to the Lamb here. The seven horns represent God's perfect power and authority, His omnipotence and His sovereignty. The seven eyes represent His perfect knowledge, His omniscience. And the seven spirits is apocalyptic language for the Holy Spirit. And one of the most interesting things, and I really, if you don't remember anything else I say today, this is my, maybe in some ways one of the more important things, is where the Lamb was. He says, now, I read it, it said, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. But this text, as I understand it, is best translated between the throne and the elders. So I want to give you a picture of this, if you'll, if you'll just, so we have God on His throne, in the center, we have the 24 elders. And who do we have bridging the gap between them? Who do we have standing between God's covenant people and God on His throne? We have the Lamb who was slain. That the Lamb stands in that intermediary position, bridging the gap between God and His covenant people. And that's the idea that, that is communicated here. Only God in His Trinitarian fullness can accomplish these magnificent purposes. Note the presence of the Father, Him who is seated on the throne, the Son who is the Lamb, and the Spirit of God who are who is the horns and the eyes of the Lamb. As the Lion, Christ conquers and reigns, and as the Lamb, He died for the sins of the world. It is a reminder to us that we cannot separate suffering and glory, the crown and the cross. Only the Lamb is worthy, and now he takes the scroll from his father's right hand. And what we see when he goes and, and he takes it, symbolically what is happening is the power and the authority, the reign of God on his throne is being symbolically passed down, handed off to the Lamb. His universal and everlasting dominion as the Son of Man. So it's a transfer of power, a transfer of authority. If it is indeed the title deed to all of creation, then what we see here is Jesus claiming that and saying it is time for me to redeem what is mine. It is time for me to claim my inheritance of this world. And this would have been to, to the prophet, to the apostle John, of great comfort that the Lamb would be victorious it would have been a great comfort to his hearers that the Lamb who had suffered, the Lamb who it was slain, was now risen and would be victorious over all and would redeem finally and fully God's creation. And so the four living creatures and the 24 elders, when they see this, when they hear this, when the Lamb takes it, they do the only thing they can do. And as they fell down and they worshiped, at the feet of the Lamb. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. These were 24 elders, and what were they sitting on? Thrones. And yet, when the Lamb who was slain shows up, what do they do? They come off their thrones, and they fall down before Him in worship, and adoration, and praise. And that brings us to verses 9 to the end of the chapter. And it's, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not much of a shouter, but it's hard not to shout. That's exciting. And it's it's amazing, this song. This song they began to sing for the Lamb who is worthy. The the four creatures and the 24 elders offer a song of praise. And they give five reasons the Lamb is worthy here. Number one is His substitutionary death. That you were slain, they say. Second, that is the price He paid to redeem. And it was His very blood By your blood, they say. And this idea of the blood of Christ as the price of our redemption runs all through the apocalypse. It runs all through Scripture. It's been said that there's a scarlet thread that runs through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it is the blood of Christ, the redeeming blood of Christ that does that. Thirdly, he purchased, it says, he, he ransomed, he redeemed. Different translations are going to render it a little bit differently. People from every nation, every language, and every tribe. He, the Lamb did not merely redeem Israel, he redeemed people from all nations everywhere. Guys, I don't know if you ever think about this, but the kingdom of God is going to be very different than the world we live in today. Because when we get there, there are going to be people that are very, very, very different from us. From every nation, every tribe, every language. And they're all going to be there because of the Lamb who is worthy, the same reason we are. This is our reason for missions. Starting you're doing Penny Crusade next week. This is our reason for missions. And guys, I want you to know the mission is successful. Because there will not be a tribe, a nation, or a language that is not represented in the kingdom of God. But he goes on. He, he didn't just redeem these people. He didn't just purchase them. He says he made them a kingdom of priests. This idea of being priest emphasizes the relationship we now have with God through Jesus Christ. That it is about intimacy and immediate access to God through worship and praise. It's the notion uh, that we, our identity, we live in a, in a culture and a society today, even people in the church, that we really, people struggle to understand where their identity is rooted. They try to root it in, in, in relationships with other people. They try to root it in their jobs. They try to root it in, um, in, I don't know. I mean, something that's very common today is people sort of root their identity in their sort of sexuality and, and, and that thing. Some people try to root it in their education. They try to root their, their, their identity in all sorts of things that will all wind up being worthless. This is a reminder here that our identity of who we are is grounded 
in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We are priests because of him. A kingdom of priests. And then fifth, that he says that these this kingdom of priests from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will reign. And it's a very Advent Christian verse because where will they reign? On earth. The new heavens and the new earth. Once everything is made new, this fallen world will be rectified. It will be corrected. And we will reign with the Lamb on the new earth. And so this heavenly chorus proclaims the worthiness of the Lamb to open the scroll. To rec- and, and I want you to notice that if you have time, maybe later today or later in the week, read chapter 4 and read chapter 5. And I want you to compare the song that the Creator received and the song that the Lamb receives. And you will see that they are virtually the same. They're virtually the same. And it, so it focuses our attention here on Jesus and His preeminence in all things. He is the one who will unveil the end and He is the ultimate point of the unveiling. And yet, the, the chorus begins to grow, if you noticed. A new feature is introduced, an outer and vaster circle of angels who catch, who catch this new song and begin to sing, in, as I understand it, in antiphonal singing, which is, as I, if I get this right, um, it's like uh, it's like an echo. It's like an answer. Like this side will sing it, and then this side will sing it, and they'll answer back and forth. It's antiphonal. And so this is what you have. You have this rousing chorus of, of worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb. And it says myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. It's a big choir. Would not want to be the choir director for that bunch. And this, this choir sings a song of praise and acclaim for the Lamb who is worthy. A sevenfold tribute, power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But this escalation of praise, this crescendo continues to build. It doesn't just stop with myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, but where does it go? It goes to all of creation. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea offer this fourfold doxology of blessing and honor and glory and might to God the Creator and the Lamb the Redeemer. And this crescendo, this chorus, this amazing... You know, I I don't know if you think about this. I, I didn't look around... Um, but um, most churches have these people. I'm sure all of you are singing. But um, I get a lot of churches, and, and I'll notice everybody, everybody will stand up at singing time, but not everybody sings at singing time. I'm sure you don't have anybody like that here. But um, but we'll do that. And um, I got some bad news for folks like that. If you don't like singing, you are not going to like the kingdom of God. Because there's a lot of singing that goes on there. It's an important part of it. Now I'm hoping I'm not as pitchy as I'm hoping, th- hoping things improve. But there is this idea that the elders, the the angels, all of creation does all that it can when it views the Lamb who was worthy to take the scroll. The only response is to fall down in worship and to sing out in praise. That's what happens. So mercifully to wrap this up, 
I want to remind you that there is only one who is worthy to take the scroll. But I want to encourage you that there is one who is worthy to take the scroll. None is worthy save the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain. The Lamb who by His life and by His blood has redeemed our forfeited inheritance. And He is coming to redeem it. Second, if your eschatology, I should probably define that term. So eschatology is a fancy word that means the study of the last things. Okay? Prophecy, the last things, the things that are coming. So if your eschatology does, so if your eschatology does not magnify Jesus and have him in its center, your eschatology is flawed. If your eschatology is driven by the peripheral, if your eschatology is driven by the secondary, if your eschatology is driven by trying to figure out well, who the elders are and what the lambs are and who the dragon is and who the woman is and all these different things in Revelation, your eschatology is goofed up. If Jesus is not central, your theology is broken. Third, If your eschatology does not lead to doxology, something is wrong and you have missed the point of the whole thing. If if your view of the end and of the end times does not lead you to worship, then it's broken. Because when the elders on the throne, the four living creatures, myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands of angels, when they get it, There's only one response, and that is worship. Now, there are all kinds of theological systems out there. You know, post-millennial, pre-millennial, all-millennial. I'm a pan-millennial. I think it's all just going to pan out in the end. But no. But, um, but, and all those things are fine. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about them. But if they move our eyes from Jesus and they do not move our hearts toward worship, We need to get a new theology. Fourth, the grand prize is not, the grand prize is not the kingdom of God. The grand prize is the God of the kingdom. We get Jesus. We get the Lamb who is worthy, the Lamb who was slain. What was a vision for John will be our reality forever. As wonderful as the manifold blessings of the new heaven and earth will be, the greatest aspect will be our perfect eternal fellowship basking in the unmitted glory of the triune God of the universe forever and ever and ever. We win and we get Jesus forever. That's the grand prize. Everything else is gravy. Everything else is bonus. It's pretty awesome. And so this passage finally should remind us that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who is our hope. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise You and we thank You for Jesus. Jesus, the Lamb who was slain but who now stands at Your right hand. Jesus, who now stands to intercede for us. 
before your throne so that we might enter with boldness and confidence. Jesus, who was slain, who has redeemed, who has bought us back from sin and death, that we might have eternal life with you, that you have ransomed us and he has made us a kingdom of priests, that he has made us yours and that we get to be with you forever and ever. Father, turn our hearts, turn our minds to Jesus to understand that He and He alone is worthy, to understand that He and He alone saves. And Father, as we see the Lamb who was slain in our place, when we understand His power and His might and His authority and His glory and His wisdom and His strength, we understand Your plan to redeem. May it move us to fall on our faces in worship and adoration and praise. May Jesus be central. May He be preeminent in all that we are and in all that we do as Your people. For it is in His most holy and precious name I pray. Amen.